We'll hear argument next in case 1076, Goodyear Dunlop Tire Operations versus Brown. Mr. Fetter. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The North Carolina Court of Appeals asserted jurisdiction over petitioners in this case on claims that arose from a bus accident in France that was unrelated to any North Carolina contacts. Although the petitioners are located overseas and do not conduct any business in North Carolina, the Court held that North Carolina had general jurisdiction over these defendants based solely on the sale in North Carolina of a small fraction of their products. Under this Court's cases, the mere sale of a defendant's products in a state does not permit the state to reach out to assert judicial power over all of that defendant's worldwide conduct. If that were permissible, every significant seller of products would be subject to suit everywhere on any claim arising anywhere. There's one uh, piece of this I don't quite comprehend. Uh, you uh, um, there's no contest that there is jurisdiction over the parent, right? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, the parent company consented to uh, jurisdiction in North Carolina. It's appointed an agent for service of process there. So it's it's be, it's based on consent. Uh, Yes. Uh, uh, they also have uh, uh, other business that the parent does conduct in North Carolina, but uh, there is no objection to jurisdiction over the parent here. Uh, this case uh, solely concerns the petitioners who are uh, corporations from uh, Turkey, France, and Luxembourg. Do you think there is general jurisdiction over the parent if the consent were not in the picture? Is there? Is, is, does, does general jurisdiction go beyond state of incorporation, principal place of business? I, I think that uh, that is uh, a hard question, Your Honor. The, the short answer is I think the answer is no, uh, but I think that that is uh, probably a close case. Again, putting aside the consent, but I do think that general jurisdiction is about suing. Uh, a company, in general, at least in the case of corporations, is about suing the corporation essentially where it's located or at home. It's always fair uh, to bring a suit against the corporation there. I think that once you get beyond that, uh, which is a situation that would be analogous to a state's power over a citizen or a resident of the state, uh, I think you run into great difficulty uh, finding a basis for the state to assert authority over claims completely unrelated to any business that or any contacts that uh, the corporation has with the state. Uh, that said, it wasn't contested here, and there is a consent to service of process, which may or may not create uh, general jurisdiction. There's a disagreement in the lower courts on that, but none of that is contested in this case. Uh, and uh, without having to get to that particular question of whether, in fact, it's limited to — whether general jurisdiction is limited to uh, place of incorporation or principal place of business, uh, first of all, there is much more directly controlling authority. Uh, in this case, the most directly relevant cases are Helicopteros and Consolidated Textile versus Gregory working in tandem. In Helicopteros, which is this Court's last uh, corporate general jurisdiction case, the Court said that there was no general jurisdiction based on uh, $4 million in purchases uh, in the State and some other contacts. 
And the key is that, on that point, is that the Court held that uh, mere purchases could not provide the basis for general jurisdiction because the pre-international shoe decision in Rosenberg was controlling on that point. Again, this is preliminary, uh, and it just goes back to Justice Ginsburg's question. Suppose you could help me out. I assume if there's general jurisdiction over the parent company, then under responding at Superior, it would be liable in North Carolina for the, all the acts of its agents. Uh, I think that's a fair assumption. Well, then why isn't it automatically liable for all the acts of its subsidiaries? Uh, well, and, because and, and, I and, think and does that get in? Just and, and does that get into what in the federal practice would be necessary parties? Um, I, well, Your Honor, I think that really what it gets into is the difference between a subsidiary and an agent. Uh, because the subsidiary is not automatically acting as the agent of the parent company in a way where you'd get respondeat superior. And I think that part of what's going on in this case is that when this does uh, go back to North Carolina for trial uh, or for litigation against the parent company, uh, I think that under North Carolina or whatever states or nations veil-piercing or agency standards the North Carolina courts will apply, uh, the plaintiffs will have great difficulty, actually, with a substantive case against the parent company uh, because you would actually have to show involvement in uh, the actions that actually uh, the claim arose out of here. The mere general control that's inherent in the parent-subsidiary relationship is not going to create liability. And here, important to remember, we're talking about a tire manufactured in Turkey accident in France, which Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, and now this is outside the record, as I understand it, did not have any direct connection with. Again, uh, not relevant to the jurisdictional question here, but I've, just for sort of setting the, uh, the context. You are met with an argument that it's all one wall of wax. Parent and sub, they merge. It's one enterprise. And so if the subs do something, uh, any place, the parent is it's all it's all part of one thing. So um, I think that was the principal argument made by the respondent. Yes, Your Honor, and uh, I would say again, when it comes to liability and Goodyear Tire and Rubber, they'll be free to make that argument. That argument is not uh, properly presented here. Uh, it was never made below. Uh, it was never — it was not made in the brief in opposition to cert. So any argument for ignoring corporate distinctions or an enterprise theory, none of that was made and therefore has been waived. Uh, I think that, secondly, as uh, uh, we indicated in our reply brief — We have resolved a whole lot if we leave that question open, have we? We want us to write an opinion that says uh — um, unless you uh, unless you ignore the uh, uh, the separate uh, uh, corporate uh, existence of the subsidiary parenthesis, a question on which we express no opinion, close parenthesis, there can be no jurisdiction in cases like this. Is that the kind of an opinion that the world is waiting for? Well, Your Honor, I I think that uh, uh, actually. In, uh, if the Court were to write that, it would be left with the important general jurisdiction question that the Court below decided incorrectly. 
uh, and incorrectly in a few ways. I think that, in fact, uh, there would be several ways for this Court to approach it, all of which would actually uh, help to clear up the law in this area. I think that even if one gets past the waiver point, uh, and uh, the reason the Court shouldn't get past the waiver point is, among other things, because it wasn't raised, we, of course, had no opportunity to put in evidence that, in fact, these corporations are run separately, independent decision-making, observation of corporate form, and all the other things that would normally go into it. If you want to reach it, uh, first of all, there's even on the standards articulated in the respondent's brief, there's nothing in the record to support it. And oh, I, I, I thought you were saying we should not even uh, not not even address the situation where there is no special basis for ignoring the uh, the separate incorporation. I, I of, of course, uh, we we should not uh, get into questions of whether, in fact, the uh, uh, the subsidiary was a sham, oh. that there was control, all of that. But oh. the simple question of whether when you have a, a totally owned subsidiary, uh, its actions are your actions. Th- that, I think, uh, uh, the Court uh, — Don't we have to reach that? You certainly do have to reach that, Your Honor. The Court has reached it and decided it before uh, and has said that uh, the mere uh, parent-subsidiary relationship does not create attribution one to the other. Most recently uh, in Keaton, uh, in uh, which the the Court cited uh, some of its older uh, cases uh, for that very proposition. Um, And I think that uh, in — another way to look at it is even if you wanted to treat the sales in North Carolina as if they were made there directly — uh, by these petitioners, in other words, even if you — assuming arguendo that you could attribute those sales directly to, to the petitioners and not as the Court below found, treat them as not having been caused by them, uh, that does not come close to satisfying what is required for general jurisdiction. And uh, in particular, and uh, going back to Helicopteros and Gregory, just as the Rosenberg case uh, was — binding in Helicopteros on the point that uh, mere purchases are not enough for general jurisdiction. Here, Consolidated Textile versus Gregory is binding on the flip side of that, which is that mere sales in the state are not enough for general jurisdiction. Uh, Even if Gregory weren't binding, I think that you could look at Helicopteros and say there is no real basis for a distinction between Uh, mere purchases and mere sales. But, in fact, there is a case directly on point, and uh, as well as a lot of case law uh, from the time of Gregory more generally requiring uh, much more substantial — a substantial physical presence in the state. Uh, In terms of, uh, I think, no personal jurisdiction argument uh, should go by without uh, talking about international shoe. Uh, and if you look uh, at just the international shoe line of cases, even aside from this issue of Gregory being binding, uh, the decision below is equally, if not more, untenable. Uh, international shoe itself recognizes in sort of carving out an area for 
what eventually came to be called general jurisdiction, it recognizes the extraordinary nature of the state power that we're talking about when we talk about general jurisdiction, uh, which is this power to reach out and assert state power over things that, by hypothesis, have no relationship to contacts with the state. Uh, International Shoe uses the language saying that you need continuous corporate operations within the state and says that these continuous corporate operations have to be so so substantial and of such a nature as to justify this jurisdiction over uh, uh, conduct that is uh, entirely unconnected to the state. Uh, The one case where the Court has upheld uh, general jurisdiction uh, since International Shoe Over Corporation is Perkins, which uh, was a case that involved the corporation's principal place of business. And in Helicopteros, uh, following Perkins, uh, when the Court articulated the standard there, the Court said that we're looking to see whether there are contacts of the sort that we found to exist in Perkins. So of course, Perkins is a kind of an unusual case because it was a company that at the time was doing business only in Ohio. It was a Philippine mining company, and it was World War II, so the mines couldn't be run. So to the extent that the corporation was existing anywhere, it was in Ohio. That's right, Your Honor. And I guess what I would say about that is that uh, it's un- unusual. Uh, those are unusual facts, but not unusual in terms of what is required to be able to assert general jurisdiction. The court in Keaton later described Perkins as essentially involving uh, the corporation's principal place of business. And I think that's right, because in order for the state to be able to assert jurisdiction over things unrelated to the state, uh, you need that type of relationship equivalent to a citizen or resident that gives the state uh, authority over uh, the corporation's actions worldwide and not just uh, — because this goes far beyond specific jurisdiction where uh, the state has a manifest interest in uh, an accident or a claim that arose in the state or connected to the state. Um, Helicopteros, just to uh, circle back on that point, uh, does say we're looking for contacts of the sort found to exist in Perkins, uh, and uh, and as we said, said that uh, even four million dollars in purchases were not enough. Uh, I think that uh, all of those uh, cases help to make it clear why uh, the mere sales here uh, are not enough. And if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Horwich. Mr. Chief Justice, <clears throat> may it please the Court. Um, the North Carolina State Court uh, was wrong to assert general personal jurisdiction over petitioners, uh, extending potentially to uh, any claim against them uh, arising out of any conduct of theirs anywhere in the world. And uh, there are s- several ways to see why that's wrong. Um, 
even if the Court were to accept the proposition that uh, such contacts with North Carolina as there are in the record should be attributed to petitioners, those contacts still uh, don't uh, rise to the level of what this Court has, has demanded in terms of continuous and systematic contacts. And even setting those more uh, <clears throat> those more uh, precedential uh, tests aside, I think there's also a, uh, a, 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 a the result of the North Carolina Court's decision is that the jurisdictional consequences um, here would be quite disproportionate to the contacts uh, that <clears throat> that uh, on which it would be based. Um, so if I can, I guess, turn for a moment to the continuous and systematic contacts proposition, which this Court has, has certainly not elaborated in its case law, but I think it, uh, it uh, would be — I think it's useful to speak of, of what exactly the Court was trying to get at and what we think the Court was trying to get at, um, particularly by, uh, as my friend referred to, particularly by its reference in Helicopteros to Perkins as, as being sort of a benchmark for what continuous and systematic contacts are. Um, I, I think it requires seeing uh, an, an active volitional undertaking by the uh, by the defendant. Um, it can't be based on the contact uh, conduct of third parties. Um, obviously, the continuous concept of existing without interruption. And and with respect to systematic, we think that that means there needs to be a plurality of contacts. Uh, they have to be of of different kinds or qualities in the sense of. Uh, perhaps uh, employment as well as contractual, as well as regulatory, as well as uh, property, um, as well as sales or purchases, and that those contacts together have to have some interrelationship that uh, results in something that might be thought of as more than the sum of their parts. Well, what suppose it's just a corporation that's registered to do business in North Carolina, and in connection with that registration, it says — uh, I appoint so-and-so my agent to receive process for any and all claims. Well, as, as Mr. Fetter referred, uh, referred to, there, there is a division in the lower courts on whether that sort of a consent is effective to um, uh, permit the state general jurisdiction over, over the consenting party. Um, that, uh, but the court has, I, I think, been, been fairly clear in um, uh, in in setting notions of, of formal consent uh, to one side um, uh, when considering contacts-based cases. And so, uh, in part, this case, therefore, doesn't present that question, and, and we don't have a position as the government on that today uh, with respect to whether that's effective. Uh, but it certainly is the case that simply because uh, one entity in a Goodyear family of of related corporations has consented uh, that somehow that consent should extend to the entire enterprise. And if I can maybe take a minute to talk about uh, where we think the respondent's view of, uh, of this enterprise jurisdiction uh, goes wrong, um, because we had touched on it only, only briefly in our brief, which was, of course, filed before theirs. When, when a court confronts uh, a, a set of a corporate family, if you will, uh, there seem to be two principles uh, that can be usefully applied in determining the jurisdictional consequences of that relationship. One is, is the alter ego concept, which um, uh, certainly doesn't seem to be supported on anything in the record here, in the sense that there's that there's no sound suggestion in the record that uh, that the 
uh, European entities were somehow a sham, that they didn't have any separate existence, they were uh, undercapitalized or any of the other indicia that you would see. Um, and so to your point, Justice Scalia, I think it is certainly something the Court could say that the record here is no basis for that kind of uh, a decision to disregard the corporate separateness. Then the other concept uh, is the agency concept, and I, I think that may be what, uh, what uh, respondents are placing somewhat greater reliance on. Um, and we certainly, we certainly have the view that uh, an agent acting on behalf of a principal within the scope of its agency uh, can take actions that create contacts with the jurisdiction that are, by virtue of the agency relationship, attributable back to the principal. Um, but uh, there, there are two important things to realize that that, that that proposition is somewhat modest in that, first of all, um, simply because a, subs a parent owns a subsidiary does not mean the subsidiary is the parent's agent. Um, plenty of parents simply own subsidiaries as property or for various business reasons. It doesn't mean the subsidiary is automatically always acting as the agent uh, of the parent for, for all purposes or any at all. And the, and the second thing to be cautious about in applying the agency principle is that the agency relationship only runs one way. That is to say, the agent can do something that creates a contact on behalf of the principal. But that's not to say that everything the principal does in its independent activities uh, says anything about what contacts its agent has. That's exactly backwards. Um, in the and so here, uh, the, the allegation actually in the complaint is that the European companies are the agents of the parent uh, of, of, the, of, of the Goodyear U.S. entity. That's, that's paragraph 16 of the complaint at page uh, 112 of, uh, 122 of the Joint Appendix. Um, so it, it, it might be — there might be an argument that something that the European subsidiaries have done, say, in Turkey — uh, is something that could be chargeable to the U.S. parent in a case where it was relevant what the parent's relationship with Turkey was. Uh, but what respondents are asking for here, in effect, turns that completely around and suggests implicitly that the, the, this, uh, the, the, the parent of the Goodyear organization in the United States uh, it was somehow doing the bidding, acting at the direction and control of the European companies as principles. Mr. Horwich, could, yeah. I, could I ask you a different kind of question? And I apologize in advance for taking you a little bit far afield, but, um, but I wanted to ask you about a particular sentence uh, in your brief that seems to have some relevance to not the general jurisdiction question, but some relevance to specific jurisdiction. So this is on page 20. You say, if mere purposeful availment of commercial opportunities in a particular state which is, of course, the test for specific jurisdiction, if that purposeful availment were sufficient to subject an enterprise to the general jurisdiction of that state's courts, a corporation that sold its goods to an independent distributor intending that they be resold in all 50 states could potentially be brought to judgment in any state on any claim against it. So I, I take that, I understand that to read, that you think that it is purposeful availment, that subjects a company to specific jurisdiction, not to general jurisdiction, but to specific jurisdiction, if a corporation sold its goods to an independent distributor intending that they be resold in all 50 states. Am I reading that correctly? Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe so in the sense that uh, I, I think we were uh, sort of assuming arguendo a concept of purposeful availment. Uh, that, that would be willing to attribute uh, those 
those contacts for purposes of a specific jurisdiction <coughs> excuse me for purposes of a specific jurisdiction analysis um, I, I don't know if that helps with with the answer no I was hoping that the answer would be yes actually but, <coughs> but, but no, there's at least one other person in the courtroom who was hoping that too <laughs> well, I, 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 I was wondering why why is your interest in this case uh, so much greater than it would be in in the other case and, and this I've been wondering that at the outset and, and this Sentence that Justice Kagan points out brings that. Well, Justice Kennedy, let me let me put it this way: the difference in our interest in the two cases is, uh, at bottom, just a difference in magnitude. But we think it's a fairly significant difference in magnitude, um, in the sense uh, in the sense that the jurisdictional consequences of an assertion of general jurisdiction. Uh, are that uh, with that one determination, it is the case that that defendant can pot- could potentially be brought to judgment in a forum uh, for all uh, for, for claims arising from any of its conduct anywhere in the world. Uh, and specific jurisdiction, by construction, by its very nature, uh, is only going to be a determination, whatever the contours of the specific rules that are used, it's going to never be more than a determination that jurisdiction in a claim, considering the relationship between the defendant, the forum, and the particular litigation, uh, gives rise to jurisdiction. I mean, you've heard the argument in the last case. I mean, it seemed that that potentially can subject the smallest manufacturer to liability throughout the world because he uses the Internet. And, and uh, that — I don't know what the foreign policy — you've heard treaties discussed, et cetera. You want to say anything? <laughs> and, and briefly. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Chief Justice. Um, I, the, 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 the brief answer is that the, the, the Internet questions in particular are uh, so complicated and indeed so potentially far-reaching mm-hmm. that in a case that presented them, uh, our interests might very well be different. <laughs> Saved by the bell. (laughs) (laughs) Ms. Petty. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Goodyear petitioners ask this Court to assist them in avoiding the jurisdiction of the North Carolina courts. This Court should decline for two reasons. First, there's nothing new here. Ample evidence supports North Carolina's exercise of general jurisdiction over the petitioners under very well-established general jurisdiction and due process principles. And second — I think there's something very new about this, because general jurisdiction is all-purpose jurisdiction, and for a corporation, it's sort of like um, a residence for an individual. I think Mr. Federer was making that point. That what, what's troubling here is that the North Carolina what seems to be blending the two together, specific jurisdiction, based on the claim arising in the forum, and general jurisdiction, where the claim has nothing to do with the forum, and it's an assertion of jurisdiction over any and all claims. And I do not know of any case post-international shoot. The only thing that we have is Perkins against Ben Gay. Uh, is, there, is there any case in which this Court has sanctioned the assertion of general jurisdiction based on uh, some tires, some products coming into the state, not the product that caused the injury abroad? I don't know any case. Your Honor, if that's, if that's the characterization of the case and that's all you had, then there wouldn't be a case. 
our argument here, and I think the, what, the, uh, what the evidence in this case bears out, is that is not the case here. The characterization of the case by both the government and by petitioners is that there are simply mere sales here, and they ignore how the sales occurred. Our focus is on how the sales occurred. And I think Justice Scalia made a, a correct distinction that what we're doing here is not talking about uh, attribution, that, that sort of thing, and, and simply saying that because someone down the line sold them without any other discussion, uh, there's general jurisdiction. That's not correct. Well, then, then you don't defend the reasoning of the State Supreme Court. I think that the, the State Supreme Court did a lot of things right. But as we say in the brief, we think that they took a detour in using uh, inappropriate uh, stream of commerce language that isn't there. It's not that they didn't have help doing it. For example, the petitioners have changed their tune here. They talked routinely about purposeful availment in their briefs to the uh, Court of Appeals and to the uh, Supreme Court. For example, page 327 of their brief requests uh, that, they, that they find purposeful availment here. So the Court had a lot of help. But that part of the opinion we don't really think is appropriate, nor is it necessary. The point that I'm making about there being nothing new is that there is ample evidence in this case to apply to the general jurisdiction principles that were used in Perkins and used in Hall and that can cause this Court to reach the correct result. As the Court is well aware, this Court can affirm on any basis supported in the record, and we believe that there is a basis in well-established rules supported in the record, whether it agrees with the Court of Appeals' decision or not. It's not bound by that analysis, nor are we. I'd like to address uh, the, the question of, of waiver because it's, it's come up. I think that uh, the Solicitor General uh, has correctly well, — you, 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 you have me in suspense. Uh, <laughs> tell me why it is that the general principles of jurisdiction do apply here, and then we can get to waiver. Okay. Don't leave me okay. dangling like that. <laughs> uh, Your Honor, as far back as, as Burger King, this Court recognized that uh, commercial activities, when they're conducted on behalf of an out-of-state party, uh, can sometimes be attributed. Even the Solicitor General agrees that there is a different jurisdictional analysis that may apply uh, over and above something like Cannon or Russ versus Savchek if there are case-specific interactions between particular affiliated corporations, as you have here. Excuse me. Case-specific is not talking about general jurisdiction. No, no. It's talking but, about but, specific jurisdiction. But what they're talking about are that there are, are, are evidentiary case-specific interactions between the party that would lead to the conclusion of general jurisdiction and the subjecting to them to suit on, uh, on a dis, in dispute-blind uh, dispute jurisdiction. Uh, in addition, this Court has used in a variety of other areas a unitary business principle uh, for local taxation in Mobile. And even as far back as 15 years ago, the Hague Convention, our trade partners that are uh, complained of here, talked about the fact that uh, using uh, uh, attributing contacts or counting contacts that were uh, based on conduct performed by others uh, was appropriate and was not really a sticking point, and that they were perfectly content to leave that to other cases. Okay, just, just give me a list of, of, of what, what factors you think support general jurisdiction here. In, in terms of the — One, two, three, four. Which, okay. which ones are they? Okay. In this case, I think it's the part — and, frankly, we'll use the Solicitor General's definition of a system uh, from their brief at, uh, at page uh, 
23, where they talked about conduct that forms a system and aggregation of objects united by some sort of regular activity or interdependence. Using their definition, I think you asked the question, uh, is a defendant part of a continuous business system or enterprise that conducts general business activities in the forum? And the first question you ask is, is it a single uh, system or an enterprise? This Court has said in mobile oil that a unitary business uh, is identified by You don't have anything in the record about this being a unitary business, unless you're trying to uh, present some sweeping, piercing the corporate theory. There is nothing here that says that these aren't corporations that are acting separately, that have their own officers, have their own employees, keep their own books. There's nothing to show that it's all part of one I, I, enterprise. I, di- I disagree with that, Your Honor. Under the sort of traditional measures that the Court has used in terms of, of ownership, et cetera, I don't think there is anything. But even the Solicitor General concedes, page 27 of their brief, that the Court of Appeals effectively treated the parent and subsidiary corporations as an undifferentiated entity for distribution of the petitioner's products. And that was our position below. And I think if you look well, at the, the question isn't whether they did that. The question is whether it was right to do that. that that's I mean, you, you don't make your point by saying that the Court of Appeals made a mistake. No, no. But I think, I think what, what, at least as I understood her question, and I may have misunderstood her question, was is there anything in the record where, where they had done that? I think the, the evidence in the record is uh, part and parcel of the fact findings that the trial court made about the existence of a highly integrated uh, supply and distribution system uh, in the, that operates in the state. Uh, the number of tires, for example, that petitioners manufactured in North Carolina was determined solely by orders that were solicited in North Carolina by Goodyear and forecasts made by Goodyear based on data that they gathered there. On the distribution side, uh, the testimony from Mr. Kramer was that uh, they don't send tires to, for distribution. They don't do any distribution. It was an internal distribution system. Well, well I mean, those, those arrangements could exist with a lot of distributors. You don't want to ship a distributor's stuff that the distributor is not going to be using. I mean, Your Honor, I think— Goodness, I, Jim, the fact that you coordinate with your distributor how much of your product you're going to ship to him, it, it doesn't, doesn't really show that Your Honor, you're a unitary business with your distributor. Your Honor, I think this goes way beyond coordination. For example, Mr. Kramer testifies that, quote, their job is just to be given a forecast or a ticket, and then they just build widgets. That's all they do. They were complete. Their their solicitation and their production was solely based on the control and the request from the parent. The requests, as he testified, quote, emanate from the request that Goodyear would make. And the production and uh, supply system was the same for all of them. On the distribution side, the testimony was even more, uh, I think, was even more uh, uh, limited in that he said the plant in Turkey doesn't control any distribution. Uh, They wouldn't send anything into the United States without the approval and sanction of the parent, and anything else, quote, just doesn't happen. So this was a closed system. It was dominated by the Goodyear parent, and there wasn't a question of coordination. It was they didn't produce unless the parent told them to. They sent it where the parent said they should send it to, and when it got to the United States, the testimony is is that the parent controlled it at that point. But it wasn't the product that caused the injury here. As I understand, 
the case, the tire that allegedly caused this bus to turn over uh, was designed for the European and Asian market, not the U.S. market. The Goodyear regional RHS tire that was on the bus and that failed was not generally designed for the U.S. market, although it was brought over here under special circumstances. The tires we're talking about are of three kinds. They're passenger and bus tires that you would ordinarily see that would be sold individually. Second, a second category are tires that were sold as original equipment on cars and buses. And third, and the predominant type that were sent to the United States were specialty tires for so-called low-boy trailers, which are horse trailers, boat trailers, of which there are many in North Carolina. But why did — why should um, — um, Mr. Fetter brought up the helicopter, what, and he said in that case it was purchases, and in this case it's sales. And in, in the purchaser case, certainly we said, no, there's no general jurisdiction. Why should it be any different? I think the distinction between — Hall and Perkins is not so much purchases and sales. It's, it's which contacts do you count. And the language that is sort of forgotten in Hall is uh, the language that they talk about you needed to have the same general business contacts that you had in Perkins. I think the difference is, is that purchases are sort of a one-shot deal. They may be supplied. They're, they're more regular. But the core business is selling, uh, is selling items. And so sales count more than purchases. There, there was in Perkins — uh, uh, it was the home of the corporation. There was no other at the time because their permanent home was uh, not functioning because of the war. So there was only one place. Your Honor, I, I, I think the facts of that case are is that one officer of the corporation came home and he was main, he maintained. He was the president of the corporation. He was the president of the corporation. And whatever business it was doing, it was doing from that office in Ohio. Right. And the court characterized that. I, th- I think there's a difference between what the court did in Perkins and how it was described in Keaton. That's the, the language that the petitioners have used. But the language that the court used in, in Perkins was that the decision was based on the supervisory activities, not the fact that it was the principal place of business, but the fact that the supervision over, for example, the renovation of the factory after the war took place in the forum. May I, may I ask you about uh, I mean, the ramifications of your theory that there's general jurisdiction in North Carolina over these three subsidiaries? Suppose that uh, one of the children on that bus was a Canadian citizen who was going home to Canada and has the idea that juries in North Carolina are more liberal than in France. Well, there wouldn't be any jury in France. But so could the Canadian come and sue because there's general jurisdiction in the United States? I think it would depend uh, upon a lot of factors, Your Honor. Are you assuming that there is — it's established that there's general jurisdiction there, or are we in the no, same you, fact you, pattern? No, you — are talking about Goodyear and these three subsidi- subsidiaries. You say there's general jurisdiction in North Carolina. Those companies can be sued on any and all claims. So my question is, could anyone on that bus that turned over in Paris come to North Carolina to bring the wrongful death or whatever? I think, I think in theory they could. I think in practice the case would never uh, stay there. 
uh, because of the controls that we talked about on forum shopping, about particularly forum nonconvenience. One of the suggestions, for example, that we made is one may want to consider for due, pro for due process purposes the residence of the plaintiff. Is it fair, for example, to have a case in North Carolina where the plaintiff doesn't live in North Carolina as they do here, but lives in Canada? So that's, that's one limitation. Uh, and as this Court said in the Sinecam case, you can look at the forum nonconvenience issue before you look at the jurisdiction. Well, that's, a, that's an odd way to think about general jurisdiction. But general jurisdiction is, is principally status, uh, your residence, the principal place of business, the place of incorporation. And uh, this, this, these factors that you mentioned are, are, in fact, some of the factors you mentioned in the brief are quite different from that. Your Honor, I think if, if the limitation, if the Court's view is basically the petitioner's, that you are limited to principal place of business, uh, state of incorporation, and, and physical presence, which we don't think is the state of the law, and, and frankly, if it were the state of the law, then we would have a, a Hague Convention now, and it wouldn't have taken 20 years to negotiate. If, if that's the, the position that the Court is, is taking, then uh, I, I don't think that uh, — uh, you know, th this case represents something different. I think that the state of the law is that, uh, or at least the, the professed state of the law, is that it is based on continuous and systematic contacts. Let's assume that you're right, that on some level like that. That, some, that it's not just the place of incorporation or the, the principal place of business, that it could be created by something more. The only something more here is Goodyear USA. So your adversary is right that what you're asking us to do is sort of a reverse principal agent. You're saying that the subsidiary has used the principal, its owner, as its agent. That's really — that's the core problem with your argument, isn't it? Because without the Goodyear USA activities, there's no other activity by the foreign corporations. Your Honor, I think what, what we're talking about is not so much attribution as more of a, a merger uh, or, or a joint activity. What we're saying is that there is a system by the Solicitor General's own definition, the kind of interdependent relationship uh, that the Solicitor General — Does good — do any of these companies, the Goodyear Turkey Company, the others — do any of them sell the tires directly to Goodyear USA for distribution to the United States? As I understand it, these tires were sold to other entities, foreign entities, who then sold them to the U.S. That's, that's not borne out by the record. That it was represented by the petitioners. We put a footnote in the brief that the citations that they give do not bear that out. There's nothing in the record, and we've read it twice since then, that indicates that they were sold, and they have backed off on that in their reply brief. Instead, the uh, — there were three methods of distribution. Uh, they're discussed at page 265 of the brief. Uh, items were either sent directly from the factory uh, to the buyers that were identified by Goodyear. They were either then sent to Goodyear that took ownership or took uh, possession of them. When they arrived in the United States, they were put in warehouse and sold outside of those. But there were several distribution methods. Page 265 of the brief? I didn't read that many pages. No, no, no. Excuse the... me. Two, 265 of the Joint Appendix. Uh -huh. Sorry, Your Honor. Ms. Petty, uh, uh, this is just a um, — um, this, this is an I'm um, just curious question. Uh, what, why do you care? You, you have Goodyear USA uh, — which has consented to jurisdiction, 
why does it make a difference to get these other companies uh, in the North Carolina courts? Does North Carolina not make Goodyear USA substantively liable for this accident? Your Honor, uh, North Carolina has particularly draconian requirements for piercing the corporate veil and alter ego, some of which uh, petitioners refer to. For example, the proximate causation of the wrong has to be related to the domination and control. And so ideally it would be great if we could go back and simply deal with them and let them collect from So, but what you're saying, then, is that North Carolina treats the parent and the subs very differently as a matter of substantive law, but you would want identical treatment as a matter of jurisdiction. Right. They have very — in most states, frankly, there's a a lesser requirement for the exercise of jurisdiction, merely allowing the suit to go forward uh, than there is for actual imputation of liability or imposition of liability. And so North Carolina, I think, is a very good example of that. They have uh, a fairly uh, liberal uh, requirement or uh, uh, state of the law that we cited in the Manley case, where general personal jurisdiction exists over a foreign corporation where it is controlled by or controls a local corporation. And that's the Wyatt Confectionery case that we cited in the chocolate con- — excuse me, the chocolate confectionery case cited in, in, uh, in the Manley case. I'm not sure that that answered. I understood you to be saying that substantively they might not be liable for the defect that caused the accident. Is that it? Yes. That, that — I mean, we uh, — I think you have to understand that this case is in a very embryonic state. We have done no discovery in this case. This was a — an appeal, an interlocutory appeal from the denial of a motion to dismiss. And so there's been one deposition on a very limited jurisdictional issue. So we've not had an opportunity to develop that facts. We hope that we'll be able to develop those facts. But what we're faced with here is a situation where North Carolina would permit the exercise of jurisdiction under its uh, well-established law on general personal jurisdiction. But when it comes to the imposition of liability for substantive purposes, that may be uh, a much, much, uh, much tougher sledding. And so in order to preserve the interests of our client, we've, we've gone down this road as well. Do you have any case law that supports your position, which I take it, you can correct me if I've got it wrong, uh, that a subsidiary is subject to jurisdiction wherever the parent is, so long as some products made by the subsidiary are shipped by the parent? To the to buyers in the forum state. No, Your Honor, because that's not our position here. Our position is is that if you participate in this kind, not a, a general one, but in this kind of very tightly controlled system, uh, distribution and supply system, then there is general jurisdiction in the forum over the foreign subsidiary that participates in this. But simply generally having a parent subsidiary relationship and shipping goods into the the forum. That's not what we're contending. And, frankly, I don't think that that would be a situation in which general jurisdiction would apply. I see nothing in the North Carolina court's opinion that explains that this is a a corporation where we can uh, um, obliterate the, the distinction between parent and sub. Your Honor, they do talk repeatedly about the existence of this highly integrated 
uh, distribution system. I think it might be helpful to sort of flip it over and say, what would happen if we adopted the petitioner's view that you ignore this system and all you look at is a, is a few sales? I think that then you would end up with a situation that would be unfair to the state of North Carolina in terms of providing a forum for its residents. I mean, for example, if I may give a hypothetical, uh, if you have uh, a not a, a manufacturing plant in Turkey, but let's say in China, that is producing massive amount of tires for importation into the United States, thousands of tires in this same distribution system, based on their uh, view that it has to be principal place of business, state of incorporation, and that mere sales are not uh, don't count, and it has the same jurisdiction system, then even that uh, that producer. Uh, and, frankly, Goodyear is one of those producers, uh, wouldn't be liable in North Carolina if the injury occurred someplace else. There's, there's a — you open your brief saying something to the effect of this case is about outsourcing. Jobs from the U.S. going some, to some subsidiary, subsidiary abroad. But then these subsidiaries are making tires, which, on your own admission, very rarely come to the United States because they're designed specifically for vehicles in Asia and in <coughs> Europe. And so I would think that Turkey would be the ideal location for, for such a place. I don't get your outsourcing pitch. Your Honor, our, our position here is that you will incentivize outsourcing if you agree with the petitioner's view. With regard to the existing plants, 1,500 miles, which is the distance from Istanbul to Paris, is, is not exactly local uh, production. But what we're talking about is, again, something like the example that I gave you of uh, a production in China that you have, uh, and, and it's based on the definition that we make of outsourcing, which are jobs that simply were in the United States. If a CEO is faced with a situation of locating a plant in, uh, in North Carolina and subjecting the production of that plant, even if it's completely for export, and particularly if it's completely for export, to the jurisdiction, the general jurisdiction of the state courts, and can put that plant in China and send items around the world uh, and not be subject to the jurisdiction of North Carolina, where do you think they're going to put that plant? Now, I don't disagree that uh, — You'd rather be sued in China? I think they would rather be sued in I, I wouldn't. Well, don't you think that's a question as to which we ought to have some sensitivity to the views of the United States expressed here by the Solicitor General? It certainly implicates foreign relations concerns. Your, Your Honor, I think that the uh, — well, uh, let me answer this in two ways. First way is the policy considerations, either on our side or their side, are not due process issues. And the second point that I was going to make was the idea that the due process clause doesn't trump uh, — the exercise of jurisdiction over the petitioners here based on policy. Instead, it has to be a showing of unfairness. I thought your argument about outsourcing <coughs> sounded an awful lot like a policy argument. Well, it, it is a policy argument, but I think, Your Honor, that in, in all candor, I think we felt the need to, to respond to the policy arguments of not just the government, but also to the other side. I would, I would say, let me, if I, if I may complete, complete the other thought, is that all of those considerations, as interesting as they are, as compelling as they may seem, you know, are not due process considerations. This Court really isn't empowered 
to restrict the jurisdiction of state courts based on assisting the United States in negotiating trade treaties. Instead, it has to be based on unfairness and uh, showing of undue burden. With regard to uh, getting back to the Not just unfairness and undue burden. It's a matter of what, uh, what power a sovereign has. That I mean, it could be perfectly fair if you announce that you're going to assert jurisdiction over anybody who harms an American citizen anywhere in the world, and you give notice to every manufacturer in the world. That would be perfect fair, but you have no power to do that under, under accepted notions of what a sovereign can do. And it, and it would be tempered by the, the — uh, the, uh, burdens test that uh, is articulated in Asahi and elsewhere. But none of that impacts, uh, you know, policy considerations such as trade negotiations, et cetera. And the focus has been fairness and balance of interests. And here you have a a manufacturer uh, and you have uh, petitioners who voluntarily participated in an enterprise that operates in the state here. And we think that there's nothing unfair about when they — agreed to deal with this, when they made money off of doing this, when they do this on an ongoing basis, there's nothing unfair about, uh, about subjecting them to liability there. And particularly when you look at the Asahi factors, there's really no burden on the defendants here. One of the things that the petitioners did not respond to in our, uh, our brief is the notion that no matter what this Court decides, two of these uh, petitioners are going to be litigating in a foreign country anywhere. And the only thing that they have interjected as a burden is the presumptive burden of litigating in another country. They're going to be litigating in another country unless uh, a court atomizes this case and says that the petitioners have to litigate in four different states. So there's nothing, uh, there's nothing to sort of suggest that there's, there's any burden, nor, therefore, a basis for uh, restricting the jurisdiction of the North Carolina state courts based on due process concerns. You know, by contrast, uh, and, and the other thing that the only if you believe that burden is the only issue, the issue is power, not just burden. That's that's correct. But the but at least this court has said since Pedoria versus Neff that the power is tempered only by the due process clause, not about policy concerns. And so, it, as, as I think the Court's correct, that it may be perfectly fair to announce this to the world, but it's up to this Court to determine whether uh, due process would restrict the exercise of that power, and it does it on an enunciated set of factors, none of which includes assisting the United States in negotiating trade treaties. The petitioners, uh, I think, as we've suggested, uh, have not really shown any sort of burden here, and they would be litigating with the same lawyers in the uh, same lawyers in the same uh, forum as their parent. And the court has observed that even the kinds of litigation that would take place, the burdens on litigating in a foreign uh, foreign uh, forum are much reduced, and that was in 1957, the year that I was born. The primary objections here are based on trade. I think it's, it's interesting that the government uh, has, has talked about those, but I don't think that's a basis for restricting jurisdiction. Could you go back when you, you said something about the two of them are subject to suit? So you said this is a question of one lawsuit instead of four. Could you explain? Well, for example, the, the parent and the three petitioners all have principal places of business in four different countries. And we have general jurisdiction over the parent in the forum. We have the same lawyers 
that are representing all the parties in the forum, and we intend to go forward. What about France? Well, in France, the the petitioners from Luxembourg and from uh, Turkey, if they litigate in France, they're going to be litigating in a foreign country as well. And so our question is, why is it somehow more convenient to litigate in France than it is in the United States when you've got not the same not lawyers? It's a question the- of more convenience. It's a question that the claim arose there, and then, of, of course, it's, just because the claim arose there, there would be some convenience factors or the witnesses to the accident are there, the, whatever's left of the bus is there. Well, those, those are the forum nonconvenience issues that, that, a, that a court would consider. But I'm talking about the due process question uh, in terms of investigating the, the actual burden on the petitioners in litigating in the forum. And the only thing that they've really focused on is their preference for that forum, which is not a due process concern. Thank you, Thank counsel. You. Now, Mr. Federer, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, the purported integrated distribution uh, that uh, respondents are pointing to as the basis for uh, ignoring the corporate separation here, uh, whatever else you could say about it and whether it's really any different from uh, normal coordination, it only relates to the tiny fraction of petitioners' business that involved tires going to the United States. So uh, where they didn't normally market their products, and so, of course, everything that they sent to the United States was only when uh, the U.S. affiliate reached out to get tires. Uh, That does not, under any theory of which I'm aware, even the most aggressive uh, enterprise theory, that would not amount to a basis for merging the two companies uh, and treating parent and sub uh, as if they were one. Uh, as far as the uh, hypothetical about China goes, I wanted to briefly address that. Of course, to the extent that there are a lot of tires sent in from China or anywhere else uh, to North Carolina or any other state, there will be specific jurisdiction most likely in those cases. Uh, our position here is simply that the fact that uh, tires are coming in, of which you may have specific jurisdiction, is no basis to say that you can also bring in North Carolina what general jurisdiction would allow you to bring. Uh, Claims from workplace accidents in China, lease disputes, uh, and whatever else. What about special jurisdiction? Why don't we decide this on the basis of special jurisdiction? It's an accepted basis of jurisdiction. Citizenship is. Uh, Countries can uh, make it a crime. Uh, In fact, I think Italy does, uh, to — kill an Italian citizen abroad, and that person can be tried for that crime in Italy. So I assume that 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 is an acceptable basis of jurisdiction. So why don't we say that there's a specialized jurisdiction when a citizen of of North Carolina is uh, is injured abroad, uh, so long as there is uh, — what what, what is the word? Uh, uh, The the, uh, — Submission to the uh, to the courts of North Carolina by by having enough contacts with North Carolina. The previous case, what's that crazy Avail. word? Availment. I meant to look that up. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it's ever been used except in this courtroom. Uh, well, why don't we decide it that way? Uh, well, Your Honor, I don't. Uh, I don't think our law has a concept of uh, special jurisdiction 
like that as consistent with the due process clause. And I think that even uh, — I won't purport to speak for the respondents in the other case, but I think that they would uh, probably agree that if the accident had happened to a New Jersey citizen in France, that that would not create, even under their stream of commerce theory, uh, jurisdiction. Uh, under our due process precedents, you need purposeful availment, and for general jurisdiction, of course, you need uh, quite a bit more than that. And uh, so, uh, uh, while creative, I don't think uh, there, there is a country that has the, what Justice Scalia. France, in the Civil Code, says uh, any French citizen can sue anybody on any claim in France, but we consider that an exorbitant jurisdictional rule. Uh, we, we do, Your Honor, and uh, obviously we wouldn't uh, recognize that under our due process clause, and I think it points up uh, some of the reasons why, at least at the margins, uh, it is important to be able to negotiate treaties so that uh, we can avoid having uh, that sort of jurisdiction exercised against our citizens, just as within the European community uh, they have an agreement that it's not exercised within that community. If there are no further questions. Uh, Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.